Well, this final Sunday in Epiphany brings us once again to the story of the transfiguration of Jesus. As we look forward towards Ash Wednesday and the beginning of the Lenten season. And yes, this text is very familiar because it appears at the same time each year, every year. So let's not let the familiarity of the text diminish its significance. I hope you listened with new ears as you heard Matthew's account read just now. Because the text brings with it beautiful imagery, mysterious imagery of change in this metamorphosis, transformation of Jesus before the disciples on the mountain. And it brings with it the promise of change for us as we intentionally seek to encounter the divine in meaningful ways. As we ponder this change in Jesus and the disciples' response, what might this mean for our own opportunities for change in the presence of God as we look forward to the week and weeks ahead? How might we, like Jesus, be changed by God for the sake of the world? We'll return to that question in a little bit. But first, to dig in to the story Matthew tells. We don't know what these three disciples thought as they clambered up over rocks and past scrubby trees trying to keep up with Jesus as they ascended the mountain summit. Perhaps they thought this trip would result in some change in them. Perhaps they thought they would descend the mountain with more faith or more power or more imagination based on what they had experienced with Jesus. But I imagine that of all the possibilities they'd considered, the complete transfiguration of Jesus, their teacher and friend, and seeing the appearance of the long dead and gone Moses and Elijah was not even on their radar. And I have always wondered I don't know about you. Why in the world Jesus brought these three up the mountain with him? If he was just going to ignore them. He was going to talk with Moses and Elijah. Leaving these three humans off to the side somewhere. To simply witness the presence of such power, spiritual wisdom and glory. And completely ignoring Peter's silly suggestion to build tents and stay a while with his word and other gospels saying, Peter doesn't even know what he's saying when he says, it's good for us to be here. Jesus just ignores all of that, or seems to. But Peter's statement makes me wonder, is it? Is it good for us to be here? In some ways, yes. In some ways, Peter is absolutely right. It is good to set aside times for places and contemplation. Times to get away, to get up, to get out from the routine, to be completely alone with God and what 
the Spirit will do with you when you get by yourself. It is good for there to be times times like that in our lives. And it is good to gaze on Jesus whenever and however he reveals himself to us. It is good to move out of our comfort zones and be confronted by the indescribable otherness of the divine. Until the transfiguration happens, Peter and his fellow disciples experience Jesus as a teacher, a storyteller, a healer, a constant traveling companion. His face, his manners, his voice, his mission are all becoming familiar to them. Familiar, endearing, and safe. But then one day, high up on a mountain, the unimaginable happens. Before their very eyes, Jesus changes, becoming at once both fully himself and fully unrecognizable. The man they think they know is suddenly more, suddenly other. And the path that lies ahead of him, a path that must end on another high place, a hill called Golgotha, upends everything that the disciples think they understand about Jesus. So in other ways, it's not good to fixate so much on the sublime and amazing that we forget or ignore the mundane. Because most of life is unspectacular. Most of life doesn't dazzle us with nonstop special effects. But all of life, all of life is sacred, contains the sacred. The challenge is to cultivate the kind of sight that perceives God in these darker, murkier, more obscure places than a beautiful mountaintop vista. So as soon as Peter affirms his experience, he wants to do what centuries of faithful people who've encountered God's glory by surprise have done. Build markers in the places where humanity has encountered the divine. There's precedent for Peter wanting to make something to remember what happened here. Jacob did it. If you remember, after his dream about a ladder going up to heaven, he put stones in the place where he laid his head and had the dream. Joshua did it to help the people remember how God led them across the Jordan River into the promised land. This is a desire to remember a place and mark it somehow as sacred so that others in later generations who come upon it may also know something special happened here. It's a way of honoring the God story that is larger than all of us and yet redeems us in the ways we most need it. But then there is also the flip side to Peter's plan to make dwellings, one that reveals our human tendencies to contain, control, 
domesticate, and possess the divine. So Peter stands for all of us who have at some time or another wanted to harness the holy, keep Jesus shiny and beautiful and safe, up on a mountain with us and no one else. Because after all, when you've had a mountaintop experience, it is so very hard to ever want to leave. Everything is just so good up there. It's so clear. It's so unmistakably spiritual. Why not stay forever? Well, for one thing, it's because God says no. Even before Peter finished speaking, God covers him and the disciples in a thick cloud and tells them to listen to Jesus, not to their own misconceptions about the life of faith. It is Jesus' way, the way of the valley, the way of the cross, the way of humility and surrender and sacrifice that Peter must learn to follow. And it's the way we must learn to follow, too, every day, every year. Matthew, Mark, and Luke tell this story of Jesus' transfiguration and Peter's struggle to follow Jesus' way, which in a sense can be comforting for all of us because if their three communities struggled with this, if it was a challenge to be a disciple of Jesus for them, we're in good company when it gets hard for us when we struggle to follow and to accept God's command to listen to Jesus and then do what Jesus says, which of course is, don't be afraid. What I love and heard for the first time in reading through Matthew's account of this story is that Jesus just doesn't use his words. He doesn't tell the disciples Don't be afraid while standing at a distance from them. He comes close to them. He touches them. Mark and Luke don't talk about Jesus touching the disciples. So I imagine Matthew's community needing to hear a Jesus that comes close, touches them, maybe embracing them, holding their faces in in their hands, like a parent comforting a child in a thunderstorm. Communicating to those scared disciples more than what mere words can express. In this simple, ordinary human encounter of skin on skin, the disciples can catch their breath, can release their fear, and return to themselves. I love that what brings them back to themselves in the presence of God's incredible glory is a tender human touch and a reassuringly human voice in their ears. Because then, supported by words and a touch, they can go on with Jesus to the next thing, to descend into the valley where life is lived and ministry happens in the mundane every day. And that can be hard to want to do at times.
It's hard to consent to follow Jesus back down the mountain. It's challenging to learn how to cultivate awe and wonder in chaos of unexpected moments and boring routines. Yet what is essential is finding Jesus in the rhythms and routines of the everyday, in the loving touch of a friend, in human voices that say, don't be afraid, in the unspectacular business of discipleship and prayer and service and solitude, in the unending challenge to love our neighbor as we love ourselves. In these ordinary ways, and in some extraordinary ways too, God is at work, bringing a change in our lives and in our collective life as community. As we begin our Lenten journey this week, we'll be deep diving into the question asked earlier, how are we being changed by God for the sake of the world? And over the next five weeks, we'll explore how God changes our priorities with Jesus being tempted in the desert as our introduction story. We'll also look at how God changes our perspectives by a fireside conversation between Jesus and Nicodemus. We'll look at how God changes our possibilities by going again with the woman at Jacob's well into the town and sharing the news that God knows everything we've ever done, but that God has never done with us. We'll think about how God changes our vision of ourselves and of one another and the work of the Spirit all around us through the experience of a man whose sight was restored after being born blind. And then we'll see how God changes our very lives in the midst of feeling overwhelmed with grief and loss when Jesus calls to those who loved Lazarus to unbind him and let him go. Our question for Lent, how might God be already at work? changing us for the sake of the world, for the sake of our world, our little worlds that we're part of every single day. We can't know ahead of time what mountains and valleys will lie ahead of us. We cannot predict how God will speak or in what guise Jesus might appear. But we can trust this, Whether on the brightest mountain or in the darkest valley, Jesus abides. Even as he blazes with holy light, his hand remains warm and solid on our shoulders. Even when we fall into our knees and we don't know what else to do or say, he whispers, do not be afraid. So listen to the ordinary. Keep listening, for it is good for us to be here. 
comments.